morning again. Take your Bible, and guess what book we're going to be in? Ecclesiastes. So turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you're not sure where that is, you can take, uh, it's about halfway through your Old Testament, or you can take that handy-dandy table of contents and uh, go from there, or just click through your smartphone or device. It is good to see you guys this morning. I love that song, God is So Good. And I think that is something we affirm. I think that's something we believe. But I think that's something that we sometimes forget. And as we enter into the holiday season, for many people it is a great celebration, but for others it brings back some tough memories or some times where we, when life wasn't so good, and sometimes while we affirm with our lips that God is good, sometimes we don't believe in our heart, or maybe sometimes we don't dwell on that. And so my objective this morning as we walk through our text together is to demonstrate that even though life may be filled with suffering, even though there may be difficult and challenging times, there is still an element of God's goodness in every part of that. And hopefully, as we walk through this passage, it will be a moment to where even though you may be in a difficult stage or maybe you're in a great stage, that we reflect on God's goodness and it takes us to a different level in our spiritual development. Y'all with me on that? So this morning, as we walk through this, I'm going to talk a little faster than normal because we've got a lot to plow through. But I believe as I've studied this and hopefully as now as we study together as a community, it applies deep within our hearts. Now, what we've been doing over the last several months is walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of those books that's called Literary Pessimism, meaning it takes life from a negative point of view, saying, I want to give you some advice. I've done this. Don't do it. Make sense? Y'all ever done that before, right? You've told someone, don't do this. It's a bad idea. I've done that before. And then they go ahead and do it anyway, right? But the guy that writes the book is either King Solomon or a close associate of King Solomon. And he's demonstrating King Solomon's life as a life that, though it was a life that God blessed, it was a life filled with challenges and difficulties and, in fact, wandering away from God. And he uses two different phrases over and over again. This is all for review. One is the phrase, under the sun. When we choose to live life from a manward perspective, that is what we call under the sun living. Does that make sense to you guys? Then there's under the heaven living, which means in a Godward perspective, in a Godward direction. And that's the objective, and that's where we find purpose. However, when we choose to live life under the sun, there's a phrase he uses over and over again. We find that life is completely meaningless. In fact, he says the phrase, meaningless, meaningless, everything is what, church? Meaningless. But God wants you to have purpose. And one of the ways we find purpose is developing a biblical sense of wisdom. In order to make the right choices, in order to make, make the best choice as far as which path we should take, in order to go in a Godward direction, living life under the heavens. But have you ever come to a place in your life, and I bet every 100% of us would say this, where you've made the right choice, where you've done the right thing, where you've asked God to bless, but yet it still ends up bad? Y'all ever done that before? And the trap we fall into is that, God, I made these right choices. I walked away from these people. I've done these things, and yet it still stinks. It's still hard. And the trap we fall into is, why should I even try? Have y'all been there before? And so what we're going to try to make sense of this morning, last week we dealt with how to develop a biblical wisdom and, and live out godly wisdom in our lives. What we're going to deal with this morning, and the author addresses this, is what happens when wisdom isn't enough. What happens when we realize that wisdom has limits? Does that make sense to us? Because it does. Now, it doesn't mean we should give up on wisdom. It doesn't mean we shouldn't make the right choices. But wisdom does have limits. 
Now, if you ever go to a person that's training elephants, one of the things that they do is that when an elephant is born, immediately to domesticate this elephant, they'll take the baby elephant and they'll put a harness or a leash around it and they'll tie this element to a stalk of bamboo. Uh, the bamboo goes deep into the ground, and the baby elephant can't pull it out. Does that make sense to you guys? And so as the elephant gets older, even though this elephant weighs several tons, when you tie it up to a stake that you nail into the ground, it won't try to pull it up because it ex its experience says, I can't pull this stake out of the ground. However, elephants in the animal kingdom are known as animals that are more wise than others. In fact, it says the elephant never forgets. Have you all heard that saying before? No matter how wise it is, its experience tells him that he can't do it. And the point is, wisdom has limits for all of us, whether it's because of our issues, because of the experiences that we have, or because of some kind of past history. Make sense to us? So what are those limits for us? What we're going to do is let's dive into the text here in chapter 7, and I really want us to think through, when we find out wisdom has limits and wisdom isn't enough, I want you to notice there are three things here. We're going to throw these up on the screen some of these wisdom limits that we have, but yet we really want, okay? You follow me on that? Notice what happens here. Let's skip down to verse 15. I want you to notice what it says. In this meaning in this life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous person perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. The whole concept is life doesn't seem fair. Have you all thought that before? And maybe the better way to think of it is that when we understand that our wisdom has limits, that wisdom isn't enough, we find out that wisdom does not guarantee us things. Now, that's something you really need to dwell on. It's something you really need to think through because for many of us in this room, we're like, man, I've done these things. I've made these right choices. Why isn't God blessing me? Have you all ever heard that, that thought before? Just because we act in wisdom, it doesn't mean that we're guaranteed certain just because we're making right choices, even though probability is on our side, even though it blesses God, even though that's what God would want you to do, even though it's under the heavens living, the author's very clear. I've seen the righteous perish young. I've seen the wicked live a long life. Life isn't fair. Wisdom doesn't guarantee us things. In fact, when we deal with that whole concept of fairness, we need to understand something is that fa fairness died in the Garden of Eden. We like to say things like, life isn't fair all the time. And guess what? You're absolutely right. Things aren't fair. And even when you act in a right way, even when you live in a right way, it doesn't guarantee us stuff. The next thing that's a limit for us, if we go down to verse 20, I want you to read this. Notice what he says here. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Now get this next part. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. You ever done that before? Everybody, you have, haven't you? I mean, you, you've been there. It's kind of like, you know, you might not have said it out loud, but in your mind's eye, in your brain, man, you're like, man, you're a moron. You know, that kind of stuff. You're going to be at Thanksgiving this year, and it's going to be like, man, I hadn't seen you since last Thanksgiving. There's a reason. One more hour. You know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. You've been there? You know what I'm talking about, right? The point is, no matter how good we act, no matter how good we act, there's no perfection. Now, this is a limit for us. Would you agree? In our desire to be wise, we don't always 
live perfect lives. In fact, we don't even have perfect lives, agreed? That's a limit. Another limit we have is simply this. Go down to verse 23 and 24. Notice what it says here. Get this. 23, all this I was tested by wisdom, and I said, I hadn't determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? And his point here is this. We can't be all-knowing. Wouldn't it be great to be all-knowing, right? We want to be. The more we grow in wisdom, the closer we get to God, we'll know what's going to happen, or we'll know how to handle a certain situation. But the reality is, we just don't. There are no guarantees. There's no perfection, and you and I can't control everything. We would like to, right? But you just can't. In fact, when we take these three attributes here, perfection, we take that attribute of all-knowing, and we take that attribute of being a guarantor, it sounds like we're trying to be more like God than we are people, right? So the question is, when we recognize these limits are around us, perfection, all-knowingness, guaranteeing, all-powerful, however you want to describe that, The question remains for us is, where are our limits? What are the boundaries? Where is the frame that God calls us to live our lives within? And how do we live that out? And what do we need to recognize? Well, skip skip back up to verse 13. And this may be the most profound sentence in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And you may want to underline it in your Bible if you do that kind of stuff. But notice what it says here. Consider what God has done. Do you see that? Now, this is a profound statement because it launches us into this understanding of when wisdom isn't enough, there are certain truths that we need to accept in the context of biblical wisdom that will lead us in the right path. We have to consider what God has done. Now, he references chapter 1, verse 15 in this next verse. Notice what he says. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? That makes sense, doesn't it? Even if we go to a river and that river flows and we build all types of channels and levees and dams and we put this river eventually, if not maintained, and eventually if God so chooses through an earthquake or any type of natural disaster or a flood, he can bring that river back to where he wanted. There's no way you can always control it, all right? As we read a little further, he says this, when times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. When we accept certain truths, we find the limits of our wisdom, but we also find God. You follow that? Because where our wisdom stops, God's power begins. And so the first thing we need to learn to accept in the midst of this as we read that text is simply this. When we as believers, accept the fact that God is sovereign. There is more peace in our life than we could ever imagine. And that's our first thing there. Accept the reality, accept the fact that God is sovereign. He's in control of every atom in the universe, even though you and I aren't, right? We want to be, agreed? We would love to have control over every situation. But when we understand that even though in our, limitless, in our limited power, in our limited wisdom, when we come to the end of ourselves and recognize we can't control anything, we have a benevolent creator that does. There's something peaceful. There's something good. There's something encouraging about that. There's something wise by accepting that. 
We don't throw away righteous living because we can't control everything. In fact, we live righteously because God controls everything. You guys ever taken a road trip before? Maybe when you were younger, or maybe even with your family now, if you're a student or a child. I, I used to love road trips. And uh, we, we would get into the car, and, and as you plan for this road trip, one of the things that's exciting to me about road trips is like, you know, this is our playlist. Uh, back in the day, it was like, this is our mixtape. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Or this is a CD I spent like two years burning. Y'all know what, y'all ever do that? It's like, and I never could get the CD song to drop onto the CD disc and to burn and all that stuff. So it ended up, I just had to go back to the mixtape. But then you don't have to buy a car. You don't have cassette tapes. You know what a cassette tape is? Okay, good. Here's the thing. The thing is, all that stuff, you have your songs you want to listen to. And I kind of, in my own mind, I don't ever discuss this with anybody because it would be kind of weird. I thematically think through every ge- geographical place I'm going to be, and this would be the appropriate song. Y'all ever do that? And this is going to be great. This is the temperature I want it to be. I sweat a lot. I want it cold in the car. This is when I'm going to drink a Coca-Cola. This is the restaurant I'm going to stop at on certain places and like I even have certain ideas and things I want to talk about in the car so from Atlanta to Birmingham I'm going to talk about this and in Tuscaloosa I'm going to stop at the the, uh, the, the original Dreamland barbecue I'm going to drive to New Orleans and eat voodoo barbecue and then we're going to go to Mother's Cafe and then we're going to get some beignets at Cafe Du Monde and we're going to go to Austin and get some brisket and then we're going to drive a little further and at that point in time I'm going to have this playlist and this playlist and this playlist we're going to talk about this, this and this we're going to see the bayou, we're going to see the mountains we're going to see the Mississippi River, we're going to see all these things and it's going to be glorious and everything is perfect and I'm in control and then somebody else gets in the car y'all with me on that? And everything changes, agree? And by the time you get to your destination, you're just glad to get out. The thing is, when we think we're in control, we're not. And biblical wisdom tells us the limits of not knowing everything, the limits of not being able to guarantee anything, and the limits of not being perfect means we accept the truth that in wisdom, God is sovereign and you are not. And when we come to that reality, there is peace there. You and I can't even control the next breath we're going to take. Did you think about that? You have no power over that. You can't control the weather. If that were the case, it'd be like this every day in my life. It would be autumn all year long. We would cook boiled peanuts, eat homemade ice cream, and watch football. That's life for me. And if you don't agree with that, you're wrong. You know what? I don't. I mean, but you get what I'm talking about, right? When we accept the truth, God is sovereign. He's in control. When we're not, there's a benevolent Creator that cares for you. That listen, listen. In 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 our own problems, in our own issues, in our own background, we sit and think about things that we could change about ourselves. Things that whether how we look, how we grew up, how we think, how we act, how we, all that. Listen to me. This is something, maybe just, I'm going to speak into you just for a moment. We all recognize that God loves us. I just want you to know that. Maybe you need to love what God loves too. You are completely lovable. Love yourself. It's okay. God is sovereign over this stuff. And so when we think through these truths that we accept, knowing that we are limited in our wisdom, we know one that is not limited in his wisdom. Next thing is simply this. 
We're limited in our wisdom in the fact that nobody is perfect. You may want to be perfect, but you're not. You may want to try to be perfect in situations because so you can have certain outcomes. You ever do that before? It's like, man, if I could just do these right things up until this point, God's going to bless this moment. And so all day long you work hard. Maybe it's a test you got to take. Maybe it's a job promotion. Maybe it's just somebody you want to impress. And it's like, man, I'm going to do everything right. And I get to that moment and then God doesn't bless you. And it's like, curses. You know what I'm talking about? Recognize you're not perfect. And you're, that's like, like a duh statement for you, right? Everybody knows that. But when you accept that and understand your wisdom doesn't make you perfect. In fact, even in our wisdom we sin and we fail and we fall short. We find that God is perfect. Notice what it says here starting in verse, uh, let's jump down to verse 25. Notice what happens here. Get this, the author writes this. And I, I want to I read this. And I'm going to just really prepare you, okay? This is a tough few verses to translate. So halfway through it, and you'll see what I mean in just a moment, don't throw your Bibles at me, okay? You're going to read this and go, oh my gosh, this is the most chauvinistic thing I've ever read. Let's get context, and before you scream at me and throw a Bible or an iPhone, well, you can throw your iPhone at me, but all that stuff because I get to keep it. And the thing is, just, just hold on. Let's interpret it. Notice what happens here. Go to verse 25. So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are changed. Don't throw anything at me yet. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I've discovered. Now, really hold on to your Bible and not throw anything now. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Now, ladies, that is not what you think it means. And I want you to know, I think you're awesome. Let's keep reading. This only have I found, God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. The whole premise there is that nobody's perfect. But let's kind of understand this. First of all, he says this, going down to uh, verse 20, when he talks about, I find more bitter than death than a woman who is a snare. And what he's describing there is a prostitute and a man by his own lust and weaknesses falls into that trap and it destroys them both. The point is here is simply this, is that when we fall into our own temptations, whether it be sex or anything else, you need to understand something, it destroys us. You get that? He uses prostitution to illustrate. Then he goes on to say this later on in verse 28. I have looked and I have found one upright man among a thousand and no upright women among them all. This is what he means. And you've got to understand this. This is King Solomon's life. King Solomon, though he was the wisest person in the Bible, he was also made some critical errors. And one of the errors that he made was he married hundreds and hundreds of women, many of them from pagan lifestyles. And these women, because he was so addicted to the pleasures of being married and because he poor, chose so poorly as far as a spouse and a mate and what he surrounded himself with, the Bible tells us it destroyed him and took away his blessing. Does that make sense to you guys? And so when he looked at his life, he says, I've looked for women to please me and I've found none. 
The point is this, and he also says, I found one man among a thousand, the only man that we can think of in his lifetime from a biblical perspective that was righteous was Nathan. Nathan was a prophet, and Nathan confronted and broke, spoke truth to them all the time. So it's not like Nathan was his buddy-buddy. Nathan was the guy saying, you're in sin. You follow me so far? His point is this. I have surrounded myself with people who bring me down. You and I do the same thing. Would you all agree? All the time. Those that influence us, influence us for good or bad. There's no in-between here. And so the point is that we're trying to make in this moment is that the truth that we need to accept out of biblical wisdom is recognize that regardless of who we're around, regardless of how much we hide it, and regardless of anything else that we try to do that's good, we're still not going to be perfect. You get that? You ever try to sell your home? You ever do that before? Sarah Beth and I bought our first home, uh, and we, we, God called us to this area to start River Hill. And so we had to get ready to sell our house. And we have to keep, you have to keep that thing immaculate, right, when you get ready to sell your home. And uh, it was a little bit of a struggle for us because we had a two-and-a-half-year-old, almost three-year-old, and a three-week-old baby. It was tough. It's darn near impossible to keep a house clean with those types of people in your home. But because my wife's a rock star, we were able to do that, and I followed her lead. We're getting ready to sell the house. I don't know if this is a few weeks before or right in the middle of trying to sell our house. Uh, Cade's running around. He's two and a half years old. Caroline's a baby screaming, all this stuff. It's just chaos. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And I reach inside to get a jar of spaghetti out of the pantry, and it slips out of my hand and hits the floor, glass bottle, ceramic tile. You know what happened, right? It exploded with mess all over the place. I mean, guys, it went all over me, all over the cabinet. It was on the ceiling. And we had those little wire shelves, you know what I'm talking about, that you have in your pantry that are made of wire. It wasn't just coated on it. It was dripping off every individual wire. And it's like, you know what, Sarah? We're selling the house for shrill now. We're just going to close it. Let us just take an auction. We're leaving. Now let's move. Because it just seemed impossible to clean it up. It was everywhere, kids, running through it, leaving footprints, little 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 bloody spaghetti footprints all over. I mean, it was crazy. It's a mess. Does your life ever feel that way? Let's just be honest with each other. It's just me and you talking. It's like the more you try to control it, the more the spaghetti sauce blows up everywhere, and then you try to distract from it. And it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention behind that man, at that man behind the curtain. Let's focus on this. But you know the mess is still there, right? You know it's there. Because it's you. You're the mess. You're not perfect. However, there is a God that is perfect for you. When we come to the reality that our wisdom has limits, that we can't even be perfect, that's where God takes over. Next thing is this. We learn to accept this. We can't edit our life. Well, wouldn't that be great? I mean, imagine if you had a little device. I think there's a movie about this to where something happened in your life, maybe it's a spousal relationship or maybe with your boss and you just said something stupid and it's like whoop and you say the whole thing differently again and everything works out. Can you imagine if that was what happened? That'd be great, wouldn't it? But it, but it doesn't work out that way, does it? You can't edit your life. Notice what happens here in the text, verse 16 and eight through 18. Get this. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? What he's saying here is 
when you're trying to be over-righteous or over-wise, you're compensating for something. You're trying to earn somebody's favor, and you recognize it never works. Then he says this, do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? He's saying this. He said, don't be a fool or over-wicked and say, I'm going to find my pleasure here and now. It's a hedonistic way of thinking, and I'm going to get my pleasures now because there's no pleasure anywhere else. Then he goes on to say this. It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other, and whoever fears God, and that's the point, will avoid all extremes. His point here is this. You can't edit your life by how good you are or how bad you are. It is what it is. You follow me on that? You are who you are. Wisdom embraces that. Doesn't mean you're going to continue to sin. But look, you're born a certain way. Now you choose to sin in that certain way or not. You're born with the way you look. You're born where you are. You can't change your mama. You may want to, but you can't. You can't edit your life. And, and the thing is, this is what wisdom tells us, is that when you're biblically wise, you recognize that God has placed you where you are the way you are. And there may be so much in your past and so many issues. Remember the elephant, right? Remember the elephant? The baby elephant had all these experiences, but... When it's older, all it had to do was take one jerk of the head, and it was free. And that's you. You can't edit your life. Quit trying. Let God do something where you are and who you are. Next thing. When we accept biblical wisdom, we recognize that bad things happen to all people. Now, this is huge. Go to verse 15. We've read it once before, but I want to read. I want you to read it again with me. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these: the righteous perishing in their righteousness, and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Doesn't seem fair, does it? But what we have to recognize is that bad things happen to all people. You are not exempt because you're a Christian. No one is. We live in a fallen world. And because we live in a fallen world, bad things are going to happen. There's no such thing as immortality anymore. No one is free of disease. No one is free of doing bad things. Bad things happen to all people. The better statement is why do, if we're all not perfect, that means we're all bad, right? Why do good things happen to us? That's the better question, right? And so as we think through this, and so many of us get stuck in this process, and this is what the guy's saying. When you're wise, biblically, you understand that bad things just happen. You don't have to sit in it. We've seen them both, he says, and there's no fairness under the sun. The last thing is simply this. God is good. Now go to verse 29. Notice what happens here. There's this only I have I found. God created mankind upright. Now stop here. In his goodness, he has created you. In his goodness, he provides for us. The problem that we're in is the last part of that verse. Notice what it says. But they, meaning humanity, have gone in search of many what? Schemes. 
And we all do that. Agree? And so here's the point that he's trying to make. Is that even in our scheming, God still loves you. God is still good. So let's think through what we just said. We have limits in our wisdom. We can't guarantee anything. We can't know everything. and We can't be perfect. And so the sooner we accept God is sovereign because we're wise and we see that, that that we're not perfect, that we can't edit our lives, that bad things happen to all people, and then that God is good, the better for us, right? You see that? That's biblical wisdom leading to action. But then how in the world do we make this application to our lives and begin to take it from this point forward? What do we do? And that's really the question we always ask because the trap, like we said at the very beginning, is that Chip, I'm doing all these good things and asking God to bless me and he doesn't. So what is the point? Have you been there? Why? I'm, I'm wanting God to do something. I'm praying for God to do something. I'm making the right decisions. I'm living out in wisdom and guess what? Things still stink. Why? Stay away from that trap. Let's go back to verse 13 and understand why. This is so profound, and I really want you to grab the, 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 the really the contextual power behind this. He's saying previously to this, live out wisdom. When wisdom isn't enough, verse 13, first three or four words, consider what God has done. You get that? Consider what God has done. Dwell on it, think on it, marinate in it. And understand that we can't make straight that which he has made crooked. But what God has done is really threefold. Now I want to go back. I want you to go way back to the beginning of our time together this morning. I said there were three things, right? We can't guarantee, we can't be perfect, and we can't be all-knowing. You remember that? Here's what God has done, and I want you to consider this. God, through Christ, has done and has become perfect when we can't be perfect. You follow that? That's what God has done. Christ is perfect when we aren't perfect. In fact, that's the message of the gospel. Our life is a broken jar of spaghetti. It is everywhere. We can't be perfect, but because we needed perfection in order to be accepted by God, Christ came, lived a perfect life, and says, know me, and I'll be perfect for you. You get that? That is wisdom because in our wisdom, we know that we're not perfect. And so Jesus picks up a baton and says, I'll do it for you. Consider what God has done. Consider what God has done in the reality that Christ guarantees because we can't. Christ becomes our guarantee. The Bible says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reality is, is that when we can't guarantee anything else, and you can't, guys. You and I can't, can we? He does. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He says, I'm for you. Christ becomes our guarantee. And not only that, Christ knows all, even when we don't. Christ knows all, even when we don't. Consider that. He knows you. He knows every detail of you. He knows every facet of what you're going to experience and what you have experienced. He hurts with you through your pain, provides for you in your weakness, and is with you. 
Christ is our guarantee when we have none. So what do we do next with this? Every week we've given homework, and here's your homework this week. Are y'all ready for this? It's really easy because it's Thanksgiving week and I know you're on break, all right? But here's your homework this week, and it's really more of an action step. And what I'm going to ask you to do is take one thing in your life and apply it to these two statements. The first statement is this. Allow yourself to trust Christ even when you don't understand. Allow yourself to trust Christ. Now, this is difficult, right? Because there's so many things we don't understand about God, the nature of God, or why things happen. But the limits of our wisdom can't go into the realm of the divine. God is there, and what we have to learn to do, and this is something that I want you to become obsessive over, is allow yourself to trust things even when you don't understand. Allow yourself to trust the Lord. And, and, and you know what that is, right? Pick one thing. And this is something where you have to say, okay, i got to trust God with this. Two seconds, like, okay, i got to trust God with this. Whatever, whatever you got to do, but think through and allow yourself to trust God, trust Christ, even when you don't understand. The second thing is, is this. Allow yourself to be accepted. Allow yourself to be accepted even though he knows everything about you. Now, this is a bigger one. This is the acceptance that God has for you, even in your anger towards him, your frustration with him, your grief with him, or any kind of issues you may be struggling. Allow yourself to know that he knows about the blown-up jar of spaghetti. It's out there. However, he still accepts you. Is that good? What do you need to hand over and say, Lord, I'm just going to allow myself to be accepted by you? What is it? Because that's the principle behind chapter 7 here. Is that I'm, not, I'm wise, my wisdom has limits, and so in my limits, God, I want to be accepted by you. Go back to verse 14 and 13, 13 specifically. Consider what God has done. Are y'all with me on that? What has he done? What does he need to do? When I was a kid, I was about eight years old, I joined the Little League baseball team. And my dad got me a glove. And that glove, uh, I don't know if you remember getting your first glove, but uh, he gave me the glove. I was so excited about playing baseball, had no idea what to do. Put that glove on my hand, and I don't know if it was the way they were made. It doesn't seem like it is like this anymore. But I put that glove on my hand, and it was like I was wearing a concrete mitten. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You couldn't squeeze it. I wasn't strong enough to squeeze it. So my dad just told me, and I thought he knew everything. I still think he knows everything. I'm like, Dad, what do I do? He said, well, son, you got to break it in. And so for the next few days, next few weeks, we got a ball, and every night we would take that ball, and we would over and over and over again in that glove. You know what I'm talking about? Trying to just break it in, just beat that leather to death and to the point to where I could squeeze it. Nothing happened. And so at night, we'd take that glove, we'd put the ball into it, we'd wrap it up with a belt and leave it there for a couple of days and come back, and I'm thinking, now I can do it. Couldn't squeeze it. Then we'd take the oil. You know what I'm talking about, that glove oil, and we'd massage it into the leather. Hopefully that soften it up. Never could squeeze it. I'd go to baseball practice. It wasn't I couldn't put my hand on the ball. I, couldn't, I didn't have the strength to squeeze the ball. So it hit it and fall out. Hit it and fall out. And I was like, Dad, I stink. This glove stinks. It's terrible. Blah, blah. Y'all have done that before, right? Everything stinks. I might as well go home and eat worms. And I threw the glove in the back of the truck. We went home. I pouted all the way. A couple of days later, had baseball practice again. I had to get my glove, right? Where's my glove? I'd left it in the back of the truck. Not only had it rained on it, my dad had put something in the back of the truck that was really heavy, and it squished it flat. I'm like, Dad, my glove's in the back of the truck. It's rain. It's underneath the thing. Can you get it for me? So we get it. I open it up. And my goodness, it was broken in. 
I could actually squeeze it. We can take everything that we know, the leather oil, the belt, the ball, hitting it over and over again, but sometimes it takes something way more powerful and unexpected to break us in. You with me on that? Sometimes it takes something much more significant. And the significant thing in our life is God. Your wisdom and your ability, my wisdom, my ability, only take us to a limit. We need something more. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you're here and you don't know who Jesus Christ is, or you've never made a commitment to him, or you've never asked him to come into your life, today's your day where wisdom becomes reality. Seeking becomes a found. And a lost becomes no more. It becomes Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, here's what I want to encourage you to do. On the Connect card you're given, there's some boxes, and one of those boxes says, today for the first time, I ask Christ to come into my life. Or maybe you know Jesus and you've never made your faith public by being baptized, and that's you. You need to check that box. Or maybe you need to say, I need a phone call from a pastor in that box. But take the step necessary to accept yourself, even though he accept God, even though he knows everything about you, and trust God, even though you don't understand. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us. And I pray that in these moments that we would see your goodness, even though in our suffering, in our issues, in our problems that we don't totally understand. And I pray that in this congregation and in our church that you would work in us in such a way that you would guide us and direct us to our new level in knowing you. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us hope. And I pray, Lord, that you would change us and allow us to see your goodness, to see your sovereignty and see peace in that. Work in us in such a way guide us in such a way, moving us in such a way to where our direction is so under the heavens living that even when our wisdom has limits, we know that you don't. Lord, thank you for loving us first. Thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. In Christ's most precious name.